Good morning, everybody. Um, welcome to Regen. Um, I'm going to start worship off with a psalm today. This is Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in his steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our inequities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As the Father shows compassionate, compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Amen. So we're going to sing about that love if you want to stand with us. Well, good morning and welcome to Regeneration. We are um, so glad to be with you this morning, and um, we hope that you find yourself interrupted by the love and grace of Jesus this morning as we sing together and hear God's word and just even just greet one another and are together this morning. Um, if you are new to Regen, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Um, if you, uh, we have a gift for you out on the back table, a mug, um, and if you want to fill out that hay card and put it in the basket right next to it, we'd love to connect with you. If you have been coming to Regen and haven't signed up for um, sign up on the hay card. That's actually our best way to let you know what's going on through our emails. So every Wednesday we send an email and just kind of let you know the things that are coming up. And we're actually kind of changing our structure so that they won't be in announcements. So I would really encourage you, if you haven't signed up to emails, to do that. Um, if you have a smartphone and a Facebook account, we'd invite you to check in and use the hashtag RegenGives. Um, this month, um, we're excited. Our check-ins go to benefit H2O Church in Kent. And basically, that's a church that's reaching college students and young adults. And so um, because they can't give enough to keep the church going, they need some outside support as they're missionaries, basically, to college students. So... If you check in, use hashtag RegenGives, that'll generate a donation to them. So we're super excited about that. And then two other announcements that are on the same day. So October 7th is coming up, which is actually Regen's fourth birthday, correct? Yeah, October 7th. Kyle's excited. Apparently nobody else is. But October 7th, our birthday. But more than that, it's also Sweatpants Sunday, which, guys, this is the comfiest Sunday of the year. You can always wear sweatpants to church. We don't care. But on that particular Sunday, you're invited to wear sweatpants and to bring a child-sized pair that we're going to give to McGuffey K-8 for kids that need clothing during the week. So that's October 7th. And then right after that, we're going to be starting a new um, class program learning opportunity. Experience, whatever word, potluck plus, whatever word you want to use. Um, we're going to be doing a Discover event. It's not Discover Regen. It's just a Discover event. We're going to share a meal together. Everyone can bring a dish to share. And then we're going to be talking about people of peace. And so for those of you who have been around Regen for a while, you've maybe heard that phrase. Maybe that's totally new to you. That's okay. People of Peace is basically to help us know how we can talk to our friends and coworkers and relatives about Jesus and invite them in a really... Um, like organic, authentic, natural way. It's not going to be a like, here, you need to know Jesus. These are five ways you need to know him. It's going to be, how do I recognize where God's already at work and how do I come alongside him? So we're super excited about this opportunity. That'll be also the seventh right after the service. So Regen's fourth birthday, sweatpants Sunday, and then discover. So it'll be a big Sunday. All right, I'm going to have Zach come up and pray for our offering. Good morning, guys. I'm going to pass around these pay holes here so um, if you guys are going to be given today you can do that there's a little card in the envelope that tells you a few ways to do that but
before I do that, just pray with me. Hey, God. You are our Father. You are the Lord of the universe, of the world, and of each one of our lives. So God, I ask today that you reveal yourself in that way to us as the Lord of our lives um, and show us all of the authority that you have that comes with that. God, I pray that you will just kind of put your finger on the thing in each one of our hearts that you desire from us, whether it's more time, um, uh, more kindness, more just reaching out to other people and being with them, um, less selfishness, God. Just teach us something today in, in a way that only you can, the Lord of our life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, we come to you today as way and truth and life, that you show us the way to God, that you show us who you are and who we are, that you are the truth. You're the truth that sets us free. It doesn't burden us, but it leads to freedom and you're the life. You have come that we might have life and life abundant. And so Jesus, would we encounter you this morning? We would. We would come to see you and to hear from you. And so we bring our fears and doubts. Uh, we bring our skepticism. We bring our anger. We bring our disappointment and invite you to speak to all of these things and more. We pray this in the name of Jesus. He loved us first and he loves us still. Amen. Amen. Hey, have a seat. Uh, if you are a kid, K through six, you can go with Miss Jenna today. So when in doubt, follow the running bannings. It's good. There you go. Um, so uh, real quick, if you're on the email list or you like our Facebook page, uh, you got some information from me about a family meeting that we are calling on Thursday, October 4th at 6.45 p.m. right here in this space. Um, I didn't, uh, somebody, one of my leaders said to us this weekend, um, I felt like I was in trouble. And there was kind of a part of me that actually said, I'm glad um, because I'm using a tone of voice that I don't usually use that should indicate the significance of your need to be here at, on Thursday, October 4th from 6.45 to 8. Um, and I know that all of your lives and my life move in 12 different directions. I have never once asked for something like this. Um, and so if Regen is a place that you consider home, um, if Regen is a place that you come to me and you say, hey, I love Regen so much, I need you here. Um, our leadership needs you here. Um, we are a family on mission together uh, in, to reach Trumbull County and beyond, and uh, because we also reach into Portage County and other places, but I um, want to invite you, now. I, I want to challenge you to be here. So I'm using uh, one of my mentors is kind of pretty consistently calling me to live into the role of spiritual father, which is weird because I'm half of some of your age or your peer, um, but that's uh, part of the role that, I, I, that God is kind of stirring up in me to take up, and so Thursday, October 4th, 6.45 to 8 p.m. And uh, 
childcare will be provided for littles, so like nursery age kids, and then we'll have activities for the older ones. So, all right, if you got a Bible, go to Luke chapter 24 while we finish out this series. So this series is actually pretty easy, circles, right? Because what we're looking at is here's what Jesus did, here's how Jesus operated, here's how the people that followed immediately after Jesus operated just like him. So here's kind of the next step for us to operate like Jesus. Here's that place for us to step in as his people. So in the first week of this series, we saw that Jesus does ministry in the context of family, right? So he comes from a family. I and the father are one. And, and he comes from a family to start a family. He, he makes disciples, men and women that live their lives in every way as if he were living it. He makes disciples, And then he calls them his family, he calls them his spiritual brothers and sisters, and he equips his spiritual brothers and sisters to grow the family. Jesus operates in the context of family and in the context of homes. So we saw last week with Zacchaeus, Jesus welcomes himself in, invites himself over into people's homes, shares meals with them, and in the process of being on their turf and in their home, the gospel spreads not from city to city, not from church to church, but house to house. As the people of Jesus gather in homes, these outposts and foretastes of the kingdom. So Jesus does ministry as a family in a home, and today we're going to see he does it around a table. He does it around a table. Jesus shares meals with his spiritual family and with skeptics and and other people. And so last week I pulled up this uh, famous painting. Could you go back to the last one, Dan? Yeah, that's Norman Rockwell's uh, painting called Freedom from Want. And I guarantee you, it doesn't matter how old or how young you are, when you think of Thanksgiving, this is what you think of. You think of your family, this, this ear thing, there we go. We should just tape it onto my head. Um, we think of our family smiling, and there's grandma with the turkey, um, and this is not Christmas vacation. They don't cut into it, and it like cracks open, right? And everybody's smiling, and the table is beautiful. This is what comes to mind when we think, a lot of us think about America. This is a lot of what comes to mind when we think about table and family, but Rockwell's vision of the American family really is ceasing to exist in our time. It is coming to an end, if it hasn't already. There was an article published in The Atlantic in the last handful of months called The Importance of Eating Together. The Importance of Eating Together. And, and it says this, Americans rarely eat together anymore. In fact, the average American eats one in every five meals in her car. One in four Americans eats at least one fast food meal every single day. And the majority of American families report eating a single meal together less than five days a week. In other words, the average American family sits around a table and eats together less than five days out of seven. And when we don't gather around tables, it leads to disastrous results, especially for our children. In this same article, it says that children who do not eat dinner with their parents at least twice a week are 40% more likely to be obese. Students who do not regularly eat with parents are significantly more likely to be truant at school, which is the fancy word for skipping. But children who do eat dinner with their parents five or more days a week have less trouble with drugs and alcohol, eat healthier, show better academic performance, and report being closer with their parents than children who eat dinner with their parents less often. We have a culture have moved away from a table. We've moved toward that second image that Dan put up. And I don't know if you can see this, but every member of this family is looking at a different screen. 
So dad and the kid in the front are on phones, and the girl or boy, long hair in the back, on a tablet and a laptop, and mom's looking at the TV. This is, this is a phenomenon that um, uh, sociologists and researcher Sherry Turkle calls being alone together being alone together, being physically in the same room, but intellectually, mentally, emotionally inhabiting separate worlds. And this is how we gather in the 21st century as families. We don't gather around tables, we gather around screens. And when we do gather around tables, it's impossible to put our phones down. We live this alone together life and into that steps Jesus who insists on eating meals together, who is always calling us back to the table to share life around a table because Leonard Sweet says, an untabled faith is an unstable faith. An untabled faith is an unstable faith. So look with me at Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, it's at the end of Luke's gospel. We're gonna look at verses 13 through 35. And I'm just gonna read them. It says this, that that same day, earlier in chapter 24, Jesus rises from the dead on what we call Easter. Earlier that, that same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem, and as they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. Okay, what had happened? Jesus was handed over to the scribes and the Pharisees, judged to be found guilty by the Sanhedrin, put before Pilate, tortured, crucified, dead, Verse 15, as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself came and began walking with them. Verse 16, but God kept them from recognizing him. So check this, we know something that the people in the story don't. So Jesus is walking with two of his followers, the followers don't know it, they just think it's some dude. He, Jesus, asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. So good, right? Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened. Well, what things happened, Jesus says. Well, the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth. You know, he was a prophet. He did power for miracles. He was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people, but our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped, I love this, we had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened about three days ago, but then some women from our group of his followers were at the tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing, that they had seen angels who told them that Jesus was alive. Some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. And Jesus said to them, you foolish people. Okay, snarky road follower person, hang on. You foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it, isn't this interesting, verse 26, wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Now, Jesus, by the way, in his three and a half years of ministry, tries to unpack this. He literally says at one point, the Son of Man will have to be arrested and tried and killed before he can enter into his glory. And now he's got some of his disciples that are like, that's weird. He was arrested and tried and killed. Okay. 
Verse 27, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses, all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Y'all, this passage is rich. By the time they were nearing Emmaus on the end of their journey, Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us. It's getting late. So he went home with them. Verse 30, and as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them, and suddenly their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And at a moment, he disappeared. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked about, as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us. And within the hour, they were on the way back to Jerusalem. They found the 11, the disciples and the others who gathered with them, the ones who had said, the Lord is really risen. And then verse 35, then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking. They told them what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. He was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is why we see Jesus eating meal after meal in the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is more often than not coming from a meal, going to a meal, coming from a meal, going to a meal, or eating a meal. In one-fifth of the sentences in the Gospel of Luke, food plays a conspicuous role. One-fifth of the sentences in the Gospel of Luke is about food. Because Jesus knows that he is known and revealed and understood in the breaking of the bread. He knows that food lowers our defenses, it increases our openness and our curiosity, and suddenly as that bread is broken, we see Jesus as he really is, or put more simply, Jesus knows that the way to our heart is through our stomachs. Jesus knows that the way to our heart is through our stomachs. Jesus is known in the breaking of the bread. And so this idea that Jesus is known in the breaking of the bread, what these two men from Emmaus experienced becomes an obsession in the early church. Remember, we see Jesus operating a certain way, then his earliest followers operating a certain way. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, it's kind of the blueprint of the original church. And we see two things happening. First, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So The apostles are the 12 chosen by Jesus, so Jesus lays down some foundational teaching. The apostles lay down more, so they're devoting themselves to really what we would call scripture. They're devoted to the fellowship, to the community. They're devoted to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And then in verse 46, it says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. There's two kinds of meals, two kinds of meals that the early church commits themselves to. Now, one is this sacramental set-aside meal called the Lord's Supper, which we'll talk about in a minute. But there's also this ordinary eating together, this ordinary, this radically ordinary hospitality of gathering around tables to which the early church devotes themselves. And that's because the early church understands that there is a fine line between a dinner table and an altar. There's a fine line between a dinner table and an altar. There's a fine line between ordinary space and sacred space, especially as the people of Jesus gather around tables. The early church believed deeply the idea that the spirit of Jesus, the very presence of Jesus, 
is made manifest when we gather together. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is 1 John 4.12. It's not on the screens because I'm a dummy. But it says this, no one has ever seen God. Makes sense. Nobody has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us, in us. His love is made, other translations say, manifest in us. What is invisibly true about us as we love one another becomes visibly true. And so the early church gathered around tables and they extended their dining rooms and knocked down walls and did everything they could to get more and more and more people around a dinner table because they knew that this Jesus, whether it was the Lord's Supper or tacos from Taco Bell, that the Lord was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. That's it. This is why we're passionate about circles. And if you think I'm going to stop talking about them when the series ends, you'd be wrong. Okay? Because we are so committed to this idea that he makes himself known to us in the breaking of the bread that we have set aside, we have people in our church opening up their homes and cooking meals and we're doing these potlucks. And if you're bringing bad food, we see you. We see you. If you're the person eating all the guac, we see you. We know who that is. But we, we, we want to create outposts of heaven where we gather around a table. And it doesn't matter if you know the Bible backwards. It doesn't matter if you hate Jesus. What matters is that we can gather around a table in our homes and experience Jesus together. That's the heart with circles. So you've heard from our student circle, which meets Sunday nights. You heard from, last week from our Tuesday circle and tonight, th- today. You're here from Kathy Britt, who leads our Wednesday circle. So Kathy... Why don't you come here, and uh, Dan, I'm giving her red. There you go. So, just say anything about it? Anything you want to say. Okay. Just press her five minutes ago. <laughs> She's ready to go. Good morning. Um, like Kyle said, uh, we meet, uh, we're, host, we're the hosts, my husband and I, Harry, we live in Howland, and we meet on Wednesday nights, and we um, share the group along with the Mangeries and the Coopers, and we are an eclectic group. Um, We have probably right now about 15 people that are coming. Um, As Kyle says, we love to eat, so that's the fun part of it. Everybody brings something to share, and if you can't bring something to share, that's okay. Um, This week will be tacos, so um, we'll see what ends up coming on that night. But basically, it's very predictable about what we do. We um, gather together, we share a meal, and fellowship, and then after that, we meet together and have a scripture, very short scripture reading, and a few questions that we ask about the scripture, and then we break into groups and pray. Um, I'll have to be honest, um, it was a step out of my comfort zone. Um, I like to have people over my house, but to do this every single week and um, to provide a home for that, especially, you know, when I'm working during the day, it was hard for us to commit to that. Um, but I'll have to, t- have to tell you, it is a blessing, and we love the people who are coming. Um, we have anywhere from, I don't want to say, a mature age, <laughs> all the way down to age three. We have couples, we have singles, and we have a single mom that comes. So um, we really do enjoy Um, meeting together. We've only met twice, and not everybody can come every week, and that's okay. We'd love to have you whenever you can come. Is that all right? Here's here's the thing I do now. 
Um, everybody is overwhelmed, everybody is busy, and everybody has a lot to do. And if you wait to go to a circle until you are no longer overwhelmed, busy, or stressed out, you will never go. You will never go. Um, and I have a friend who, when he talks about this, would say things like, Jesus is asking for one night a week. But I don't want to like hit you too intensely, but that's just what we're calling you into, is something really good and sweet and great. Um, we already named this quote, but Leonard Sweet says, an untabled faith is an unstable faith. And we looked at, we looked at uh, the negative effects on like kids and our families when we're not eating together. And this is why I want to remind you parents, grandparents, like the single best thing that you can do as a spiritual investment in the life of your family. I mean, married couples without kids, the single best investment that you can make like in your marriage Dating couples, the single best way to figure out if the person you're dating is the real deal is to eat with them face-to-face -face regularly in an ongoing way. And so with a few suggestions, first of all, when you gather around the table, turn off the TV and turn off your cell phones. Now some of you are thinking like, I have teenage children, good luck with that. Um, I, have two millenn I had two millennials living with me. Okay, I've, I've had these conversations and was looked at like I have something growing out of my head. Okay, so we started with having them on silent, not on the table, but not off because it just might be that important to check that tweet in five minutes. I get it, okay? Um, but turn off the TV, turn off the phone, and when you gather, do a predictable pattern. What happens when you ask somebody, how was your day? Fine. Your kids come home from school, what happened at school today? Nothing. <laughs> McLean, nothing. <laughs> That's right, nothing, right? So we need to ask creative questions for ourselves and for our marriage. So every time that we eat as a family, which Aaron's part of our family right now, when Sarah was part of family, this is our rhythm, was to ask, what are you grateful for? And sometimes we've really felt like the Lord inviting us to increase the challenge a little bit. The three questions we want to ask is, what are you grateful for? What do you need? And who do you want to bless? And by the way, if you want to know what the prayer time is at circles, those three questions. What are you thankful for? What do you need? Well, I need courage to go back to work tomorrow because i got to have a hard conversation with a colleague. Um, I, need, I need a family member of mine to be uh, healed. I need... And then who do you want to bless? Um, one time at student circle, the kids wanted to bless a rapper. And I, who, Dan, do you remember who it was? Yes, which was the rapper. Lil Pump was the object of the Lord's blessing that week at Student Circle. Um, at last service, I said Tupac, and then somebody afterwards reminded me that Tupac is dead. So <laughs> clearly I'm, I'm with it, y'all. Guys, I turned 30, and I just turned into a 90-year-old man. I don't know. Um, but what are you grateful for? What do you need? Who do you want to bless? Are the three questions that you can ask every time you get around the dinner table. Um, try not to eat in front of the TV every meal. Netflix can wait, even though we did that with both of our dinners this weekend. Um, turn with me to, just for a second, to 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. 1 Corinthians, so if you're in there, you're going to go to the right. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34. So remember that the early followers of Jesus commit themselves to two meals, an ordinary, radically hospitable meal where they, where they ask, 
onto their dining room tables and, and they're throwing open their doors to get people in because they believe Jesus makes himself known in the breaking of the bread, but he especially makes himself known in the breaking of the bread around this thing called the Lord's Supper. The predictable pattern for the early church was this temple home, temple home, temple home. So the early church would gather uh, at the temple in Jerusalem or at a synagogue on the Lord's Day and they would worship there and then they would gather like good Southern Baptists again on Sunday night, Okay. Some of us were raised in an era where you went to church like Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And I was coming up, um, I was coming up when I was being raised at the church I was raised at. There was a Sunday night service that not everybody went to, but you still felt a little weird for not going. Do you know what I'm saying? You just knew. Anyway, but, um, and uh, so they would gather on Sunday night. They would gather in homes. The early church didn't have buildings, so usually a wealthier member of the community would like knock down walls and they've excavated these big rooms with like tables in the center, altars in the center where they would meet. But they wouldn't just like hang out. They would eat a really good meal together. There was lots and lots of food. In fact, um, they had a name for this meal. They called it the love feast, which, you know, some of you were alive in the 60s and 70s. Our parents were. Like our parents were doing some love feasts. You know what I'm saying? It's a little creepy word. But, but the idea was not that we gathered together and then like we do, you kind of got a little chunk of bread or a piece of cracker and some grape juice to do communion. It was that at this big family gathering, imagine those of you that came to feasts in our home, that just in the middle of that meal, somebody would take the bread and take the cup and bless it and offer it to people just as part of that meal. It was just part of an ongoing thing. Actually, um, uh, is it Tertullian, I think? Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, talks about the church that he led in his house. And the interesting thing was they would get together and pray, they would eat, they would do the Lord's Supper, and then after that, everyone that was there had to stand forward and sing a song, either one that everybody already knew or one that they made up on their own. And the kind of the way the text reads is to make sure that nobody was drunk before they went home. Um, and that nobody was getting drunk at the love feast. Some of you are like, I kind of need to be drunk in order to sing in front of people. Um, uh, a joke that went over better at this service than at the last one. And um, <laughs> in other words, the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist was not just this cracker or chunk of bread and juice move on. It was embedded in this meal and in this life together where we gave our attention in the midst of it to Jesus. So it, keep that image in your mind that there's a big group of people eating a meal together when we read this text, which we often read about around communion time in churches, but it, it, it means something different when we think about it with that in our head. So 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen says, but in the following instructions, I cannot praise you, Paul says, for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. And some people that like, I have a hard time with church are like, you think, you know what I mean? Um, first, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent I believe it. But of course there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. When you meet together, verse 20, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you, hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. There's somebody at a feast, like they're first in line every time. Uh, Harry and Kathy's son, Michael, and I, were when we were in high school together and in our youth group, we were very good at, while prayer was being prayed over like pizza at youth group, like inching toward the front of the line. So that we spent our last year in youth group always having to eat last. It was very frustrating and very formational. Um, he says, some of you go ahead without sharing with others, and as a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. Imagine this, the community is rich and poor together. 
So what's happening is the rich people are pushing to the front of the line, taking all the food, and the people who haven't eaten in a day have nothing left because there's preferential treatment being given to people. He says, what? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? I'm certainly not going to praise you for this. And then in verse 22, something very familiar, or 23, I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it and he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body which was given for you. Do this to remember me. And in the same way, he took the cup of wine after the supper and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. There's some understanding in, in early reading of the early, in, in early documents from the early church. They were doing this meal at least once a week. And sometimes if like Christians got together for dinner on a Wednesday night, also then too. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, verse 26, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So this is interesting. This is when the Bible gets real. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring, ESV says, discerning the body of the Lord, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. But if we, could examine, if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So, my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, not like when you come down the line at church to get your chunk of, of bread from Giant Eagle, when you gather for this big meal, wait for each other. Make sure that the people who really need to eat, eat. And then this, this is like, this is a Kyle Tennant life verse, verse 34. If you're really hungry, eat at home so you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. In other words, Kyle, eat a snack before you come to church so you're not hangry, right? I seriously will have meetings sometimes and I'm like, I need to eat before this. You know what I mean? Like if I'm going to have this conversation, well, I need a Sammy and I need it now. Verse 30, the last thing it says, I will give you instructions about the other matters after I arrive. So notice what's happening here. Let's, let's slow down the action on the play. So they're in this big room. They're eating a meal together. And in the middle of the big meal, they're having communion together. They're engaging in the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. And, but something has happened in the community that leads Paul to say, when you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. And he's right, because there's disunity. And read 1 Corinthians 1 through 4. We did that in my guy's Bible study. Hot mess of a church. There's disunity. There's drunkenness, there's favoritism, and these attitudes and actions, Paul says, equate to eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. They are eating and drinking judgment on themselves, and the sin is so persistent and egregious in them that some people, when they're taking communion, are falling ill and dying. Now, let's pause for a minute. When we read the Bible, especially when we read the New Testament, we have to do some work, the work is called hermeneutics, to figure out what is Paul saying that is specifically about that time and that place and that circumstance, and what is universal. Uh, and if it's said for just that time and that place and that circumstance, what are the principles that are timeless? Clearly, as far as we know, uh, people are not dying or falling ill 
uh, because they're taking communion at Regen. If that was the case, like, they're probably, wouldn't you think, like, the CDC would be like, time out, probably should stop doing communion, right? Like, on the annual report, it would be like, three baptisms, two people died from communion, right? <laughs> One person we're not sure about, question mark, right? What, what the principle is here is that the meal that we go to is, is and I don't want to say this shaming, but it's not to be taken lightly. It is not just this rich, righteous ritual that we check the box of, which is the danger of doing communion once a month, once a quarter, or once a week. It's, it, we drink and eat judgment on ourselves when we fail to discern the host of the meal, when we fail to discern that Jesus is right there present. Look back at 1 Corinthians 10, 16, where Paul says we've got to discern the body in 11, and then in 10, 16, he says, when we bless the cup of the Lord's table, aren't we sharing the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? See, the Corinthians have forgotten that this meal is unique Because while in every meal Jesus makes himself known in the breaking of the bread, he especially and very pointedly does that at this meal. And I'm not talking Roman Catholic, the body and like the bread and the wine literally become the body and blood of Jesus, even though it looks like a cracker. What we're talking about is the real presence of Jesus. And to say like the spiritual presence makes it sound like the kind of not quite real But what if spiritual is more real? What if the spiritual presence of Jesus at this table is what we're being called to? When Jesus is saying, eat this bread in remembrance of me, he does not simply mean a mental recollection of fact. What Jesus is calling us to is to take notice of the fact that he is freely and gladly making himself present to us at this table. Take notice of the fact that I am there in your midst as we break this bread and drink the cup. And so the text says, examine yourself. Now, I was raised in a tradition where examining yourself meant like, as you're going down the aisle, do a quick checklist of what sin is in your life, right? And there's 16-year-old Kyle, like, well, I thought lustfully like nine seconds ago, so I guess I'm disqualified, right? If we waited to examine ourselves and find ourselves totally ready, we would never get to the table. The examination is something we do long before we get to church. That self-examination, that looking over the last week is something we do before we get here, before we walk down that aisle, because uh, if we wait to find the sin in our life as we're walking down the aisle, we would just turn around and sit back down. You know what I'm saying? Instead, what we say is that even with our sin and our faultiness, even with our mistakes this week, Jesus is excited to meet us at this table. He's excited to meet us at this table no matter what. He's excited to meet you at this table as long as you are breathing. He is excited to offer you his presence and his grace. There's this quote from this book called This Holy Mystery that says, through Eucharist we receive healing and are enabled to aid in the healing of others. Sozo, the Greek word used in the New Testament for healing, is also translated as salvation and wholeness. Much of this healing is spiritual, but also includes the healing of our thoughts and emotions, of our minds and our bodies, of our attitudes and relationship. The grace received at the Lord's table can make us whole. We come walk 
walking into this room every Sunday and we're deeply aware of like the cracks and the fractures and the failures and the mistakes and the hurts and the disappointment and the lost and Jesus offers us and welcomes us to his table in order to make us whole regardless of what happened that week, regardless of what happened that day. We believe that there is grace made available here at this table and even at the tables where instead of giant eagle bread and grape juice, there is tacos and pizza and pasta. We, we believe that grace makes us whole. We believe that the Jesus who loved to dine with sinners still does. He still does love that. And so Rosaria Butterfield says, Jesus dines with sinners so that he can get close enough to touch us so that he can participate in the intimacy of table fellowship as a healer and a helper. Jesus comes to change us, to transform us, so that after we have dined with Jesus, we want Jesus more the sin that beckons our fidelity. We spend all week reading and believing fake news. The fake news of lust, the fake news of pride, the fake news of intellectualism, the fake news of individualism. We, we spend all week falling hook, line, and sinker for, for, for fake news that draws our fidelity and draws our loyalty and draws our faithfulness away from Jesus. And so we come here on Sunday morning, we come to this table because we believe this is Jesus' one clear opportunity to make himself present to us, to get our fidelity back, to draw us back to him. We're not playing religious games when we make Rebecca drive out and get bread every Sunday. We're not playing religious games. We do this every week. No, what we're trying to do is invite you into this sacred space where, where bread and juice offer you the grace of Jesus and nothing less. Grace of Jesus that John Wesley said is freely offered to all. John Wesley said, because grace is offered at this table, someone who is far from Jesus can come for the millionth time and in that moment receive justifying grace, suddenly have the scales fall from their eyes because they can recognize him in the breaking of the bread. He was recognized, they knew him in the breaking of the bread church. Jesus is inviting you to his table today. Jesus is inviting you to his table today. And he does that knowing all of the crap and all of the junk and all of the secrets and all of the dysfunction. He does that knowing all of the shadow side of your Enneagram type. Jesus invites you as you are to his table. Um, and so here's what we're going to do. Um, disciples are people who live a lifestyle of revelation and response. God says something and we do it. God says something and we do it. And so we want to give you a little bit of time to respond to God. And so um, the band is going to come, and uh, we're going to sing a song. Speaking of Regen's fourth birthday, we have not sung in this room for three and a half years. So I don't think anybody here, maybe Dan and Kate, know this song. It's an oldie but Regen goodie. And um, we're going to sing that. But I want to invite you, what is the Lord saying? Like, don't leave this moment. Right? Like, take an extra 30 seconds because you're going to run off to your things. Um, and Julia will give you more instructions from there. So, go be with the Lord for a minute. You can use the back of your program. You can sit. You can pray. Um, Art and Pam will kind of spread around and make themselves available if you want to pray with them. Take it away. 
So I receive from, so from what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he offered it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat this as often as you do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup and he said, this is my, <clears throat> this is the cup of the new covenant which is poured out and written in my blood for you, for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this as often as you do in remembrance of me. And Paul says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus' invitation to you is to come to the feast today, to come to his table. Um, and so um, Zachary and Steph um, uh, and, and Brendan Ridge, <laughs> We pray that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup that we might know you in the breaking of the bread. We come to your table today to feed on your grace. Love you, Jesus. Amen. The way we take communion is someone will rip off a piece of the bread, you dip it in the cup and taste and see that the Lord is good. The table is ready. Jesus taught us to pray that our Father would give us our daily bread and we only come to find out that he himself is our daily bread, that he invites us to feast on his presence, uh, to feast on himself. And so may you go and eat at the Lord's table. May Jesus make himself known to you and to the ones you love at your table, for he is known in the breaking of the bread. I love you so much. Uh, would love to say hi, hang out for a little bit, but peace. We'll see you next time.